You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Professor Aaron Alejandro Olivas. Professor Olivas is Assistant Professor of History at Texas A&M International University at Laredo in Texas. He received his PhD in History from UCLA in 2013. He was a recipient of a Mellon Grant at the Huntington Library, an Amundsen Getty Postdoctoral Fellowship at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library, and a Fulbright IE Grant in Spain. His research focuses on the 17th and 18th century Iberian Atlantic world, specifically trans-imperial relations between elites of Spanish America, France and the French Antilles. He has published a number of articles and essays on this topic, and his current book project examines colonial responses to the transition from Habsburg to Bourbon rule in the Spanish Empire. Professor Livas, Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for doing this. So today we're speaking about the Iberian Atlantic and the War of the Spanish Succession. The Habsburg dynasty in Spain, which oversaw an unprecedented rise of Spanish power and hegemony in Europe and overseas in the 16th and early 17th centuries, reached a dramatic end in 1700. The last Habsburg ruler, Charles II, died on November the 1st, All Saints Day, of that year without a direct descendant. And this precipitated a political crisis which led to a war of succession involving virtually every major European power. The conflict, which we know today as the War of the Spanish Succession, ended with the accession of a French Bourbon prince, Philip of Anjou, grandson of Louis XIV of France. Philip of Anjou, who was to become known as Philip V of Spain, was the first of the Spanish Bourbon monarchs. And this dynastic shift had profound implications in Spain, Europe and the Americas. So while the War of the Spanish Succession has generally been analysed from a European perspective, there were in fact other elements which allude to several crucial points regarding the war outside of Europe. First, that the war in its Atlantic world context was essentially a commercial conflict fought by the French against the English and the Dutch for control of global trade networks. Secondly, that the succession of a Bourbon prince to the Spanish throne had facilitated French merchants in superseding their Anglo-Dutch competitors in terms of access to the highly profitable Spanish-American market. And finally, that the triumph of French economic influence over the viceroyalties of New Spain and Peru was in fact solidified by political alliances created between Louis XIV's court and Spanish colonial elites. And you, Aaron, argue in fact for the importance of the Iberian Atlantic in understanding the war of the Spanish succession. And you say that the war should be understood as a war of colonial origin, which evolved into a broader conflict within Europe itself. What do you mean by this? Well, the War of the Spanish Succession is interesting in the sense that it's a kind of a turning point when we're starting to see European wars become truly global wars. Most certainly, uh, European wars uh, start this transition before the modern era. Um, traditionally, I think sometimes Winston Churchill's famous uh, line about the Seven Years' War being one of the first uh, global wars. Uh, is certainly also applicable when we look at the War of the Spanish Succession in terms of its real impact, not only on the European continent, but European colonies uh, in Asia, Africa, and the Americas. The War of the Spanish Succession is significant also because it starts to show colonial factors, I think, really come to the fore in terms of affecting European relations and causing these kind of global wars to occur. If we really look at it, the War of the Spanish Succession is really a continuation of unresolved issues from the Nine Years' War in Europe. 
which in fact began to evolve from a European conflict into a far more colonial conflict uh, by the time that it finished uh, in the 1690s. This was purposely the agenda of these European powers, especially very kind of specifically by your, uh, Louis XIV's government, which started to then target uh, slave forts off the coast of uh, West Central Africa, and more specifically Spanish America. The idea that these uh, markets were worth fighting for, and that these were the sources of Louis XIV's enemies' uh, power, uh, the money, basically, right? Uh, this will lead, in fact, to things such as the French attack on uh, Cartagena de Indias uh, in 1697 and the sort of glorious conquest uh, and capture and maintainment of Saint-Domingue that the French are able to secure with the Peace of Ryswick, which ends the Nine Years' War. These colonial factors are very clearly in the minds of the European powers when in 1700 Philip V uh, receives the crown of Spain uh, and accepts it, I should say. Uh, the evidence I found for this is as early as December of 1700, a month after a Bourbon succession is accepted by Philip V. The two Bourbon crowns actually act very quickly to send the French Navy and Spanish and French troops to occupy all of the major ports of Spanish America and also kind of anticipate escorting the silver fleet back to uh, Europe. And it's very clear in these French documents that Louis XIV's government knew that war was gonna be inevitable and that it was going to begin in the colonies. It was sort of a surprise later on that an alliance was formed in Europe that would lead to the invasion of Northern Italy by the Austrians and later an invasion of the peninsula by the Portuguese, uh, English, and the Dutch that leads to the kind of more familiar uh, peninsular components that people are uh, probably more apt to remember about the War of the Spanish Succession, things like the Battle of Almanza and the various sieges of uh, Barcelona. I mentioned that the Spanish Habsburgs had reached the peak of their influence in America in the 16th century uh, under Charles V and Philip II. To what degree had this changed by the end of the 17th century? I believe the greatest change by the end of the 17th century was really the realization by the Spanish crown uh, that it could not stand alone, that it needed to have major alliances with other European maritime powers uh, in order to keep its own uh, power and hegemony in the Americas. Uh, this was a very difficult decision. Uh, these new uh, imperial neighbors, so to speak, in the Americas, which really start to consolidate their presence by the middle of the 17th century, right? the Dutch uh, in the Antilles by the 1630s. By the, the 1640s, they're sort of the commercial powerhouse in the area. And the English, of course, conquered Jamaica, which is always a thorn in the Spanish uh, thigh, so to speak, in the Americas. And then they slowly start developing more colonies by the middle of the, the end of the 17th century. Uh, the Spanish crown was starting to realize that it couldn't keep these other powers out, especially as these powers started to become more militant. This would, of course, also include a French presence in the Americas, which was becoming far more aggressive by the second part of the 17th century, and also largely more successful. Over time, even though the Spanish crown would like to remove these other powers from the Americas, and it tried to fight as much as it could, had some victories, but usually not. 
Uh, you see the need by the reign of uh, Charles II to need to form alliances with these powers. So they sort of begrudgingly have to accept the expansion of these other European empires. And this is often uh, something that comes up in European diplomatic treaties, this idea that uh, the Spanish crown needs to re uh, recognize that Jamaica is lost forever to the English or that the Dutch have to be allowed if their ships are in distress to go into a Spanish colonial port, which is understood by the Spanish crown, they're going to be conducting illegal trade. So there's this idea that you can't really get rid of these other powers in the Americas, that you need to somehow negotiate some sort of amicable uh, relationship with them. Uh, the interesting thing, by the end of the 17th century, you see politically uh, some very strange bedfellows uh, at the Spanish court. Uh, because of these kind of hostile and competitive European contests in the Americas, uh, you start to see the Spanish crown actually ally with the English and actually ally with the Dutch, largely by the reign of Charles II in order to curb growing French power. Uh, and so by the Nine Years' War, you actually see the English help the Spanish invade the western part of uh, La Española, which is French called Saint-Domingue, to try and remove the French presence. Or you see Dutch corsairs actually trying to uh, ward off French ships that might attack uh, Spanish colonial ports. Of course, the tide is going to change. At the end of the Nine Years' War, with a Bourbon succession, suddenly you will see now the Spanish crown relying on the French in order to try and keep its colonies intact and to preserve a Spanish hegemony in the Americas. One of your arguments is that the war of the Spanish succession should be understood as an overseas commercial conflict between the European imperial powers. Can you elaborate on this? Of course, there are many causes for the war of the Spanish succession. It's not as simple as saying it was just about money. But most certainly, there's a provocative argument to be made about the importance of overseas trade and actually pulling in the different powers to fight in the conflict. Kind of a classic point that's sometimes made by certain historians who've approached the war, especially from a more Atlantic perspective, is the observation that it, it took a little bit less than a month after the French were able to secure the Spanish uh, slave monopoly, the Asiento. Uh, that the Dutch and the English then were willing to form an alliance with Austria in order to contest the Bourbon succession in favor of a Habsburg succession, naturally in hopes that a Dutch or an English company might get control over the slave monopoly in Spanish America. Also, if we follow important trade routes throughout the Atlantic world during this era, we can clearly see how much uh, war was being fought over control of trade. Uh, it was very common during the war, for example, for Corsairs, French Navy, the English Navy itself as well, to wade off the coast of West Africa to try and disrupt uh, the slave trade in order to either steal slaves uh, and profits that could be made from them, channeled into the war effort. Uh, or to blow up uh, rival imperial slave factories or the ships themselves and sink them to the bottom of the Atlantic. There also seems to be a large preoccupation among the English, use the English Navy, to try and uh, capture the Silver Fleet uh, in Spanish America. 
uh, sometimes through amicable means by spreading propaganda, trying to convince Spanish-American royal officials in Cartagena uh, and Veracruz, sometimes Portobello and uh, Havana, that the Habsburgs were winning the war and therefore they should be allowed to escort the silver fleet uh, to uh, give to the Allied powers. Or in fact, at the famous Battle of uh, Cartagena uh, in 1708, the English Navy will actually uh, try to sink the silver fleet and is successful in sinking a few of the vessels uh, in order to keep that silver from falling into the hands of the Bourbons. But even outside the scope of the Spanish Empire, we can see in the Indian Ocean uh, very active naval campaigns over the uh, East India trade uh, as the French and Pondicherry used their navy to try and disrupt the activities of the English East India Company uh, and the Dutch in Batavia. Uh, so certainly trade in the Americas, trade in Africa, and trade in Asia are very much affected uh, by the war and are very active scenes of armed conflict. So speaking of the slave trade then, um, can you give us a brief overview of the importance of the transatlantic slave trade in the 17th and 18th centuries? Who were the main protagonists? By the middle of the 17th century, we can certainly argue that the transatlantic slave trade is starting to expand rapidly. In fact, I mean, it's classically been said by uh, slave historians that it reaches its peak in the 18th century, which is certainly true, but uh, it is growing exponentially by the time we get to 1700, uh, the era of the Bourbon succession. Uh, it's becoming very important because uh, we start to see major profits made by it. Uh, European bankers during this era are all invested in the slave trade then use their money to finance other capitalist ventures, proto-capitalist ventures. Alongside that, uh, start to finance uh, European crowns. Very, very important in an age where we're starting to see absolutism come into uh, play in Europe, in which European monarchs want to rule on their own accord, uh, less with using uh, other representational bodies, which means as a preventative measure, they demand less taxes. Uh, in order to keep the peace, and they rely on the bankers then who are starting to make uh, major profits off of things like the transatlantic slave trade. Another important factor about the transatlantic slave trade during this era for the Spanish Empire is it starts to become entangled in different uh, alliances or foreign treaties that the Spanish crown has uh, with the Dutch, with the English, uh, and eventually the French during this era. So it starts to become a political tool, something that other crowns uh, and governments in Europe, knowing the weakness of the Spanish crown and its sort of isolation, its need for allies, and at the same time knowing that the trade is growing exponentially uh, and is the source of growing European fortunes, uh, it causes these other European powers to sneak concessions into their treaties uh, in which they sort of creep their way in either indirectly or directly in terms of providing slaves to the Spanish Empire. So the main protagonist really in the transatlantic slave trade during this era then would include the Dutch, the English, who seem to be the most successful in the trade in terms of their profits, their expansion in West Africa. And eventually, well, they're able to finagle the asiento. Uh, they get it from Philip V in 1713. And then to uh, another extent, the French, who are sort of the latecomers on the scene. 
uh, but are able to uh, very provocatively use the slave trade as a political tool, uh, at least during the first decade of Philip V's uh, reign. To a lesser extent, we could throw in people like the Danish who had islands in the Caribbean, who tried to remain neutral in the war. In fact, the uh, Danish West Indies sort of act as this sort of neutral ground in which the French, the Dutch, uh, and the English sort of spy on each other as they begrudgingly kind of go there to get uh, slaves that they need to uh, traffic into Spanish America. The Spanish are left out of the picture in terms of direct trade because still during this era, they don't have any uh, direct trade with West Africa. Uh, and so they need to rely on these foreigners in order to receive their, their labor. You alluded briefly to the Asiento. What was this? What was the Asiento? The Asiento was the official slave monopoly within the Spanish Empire. Uh, it was actually established by Philip II at the end of his reign, so in the 1690s. And it was largely based on this growing premise in the Spanish Empire uh, at the end of the 16th century that its colonies couldn't prosper without African labor for various reasons. By this point, uh, laws had been put into place that at least officially or formally forbade uh, the enslavement of indigenous people, again, at least legally. Also, we start to see the growing uh, uh, planter economy uh, start to come into place in the Spanish Empire during this era, which, of course, will start to uh, grow even more significantly in the 17th century, which uh, needed African labor in order to turn profits. But this growing notion that colonies couldn't prosper without massive lab labor force, and at this point, a uh, labor force of African origin meant that the Spanish crown wanted to find a way to efficiently provide African labor to the Americas. So in fact, it turns the slave trade, which was more of a kind of an intermittent service during the early 16th century, into a highly streamlined and theoretically more efficient and theoretically more profitable business that could actually make sure to provide uh, for this need in the Americas. The Portuguese were at the greatest advantage of this. They had long had trade in West Central Africa. By this point under Philip II, we have the union of the crowns between Portugal and Spain, Iberian unification. So up until 1640, this monopoly worked uh, quite uh, well for the Portuguese slave traders, who then were able to uh, use this in order to become uh, really the sole providers of slaves uh, in Spanish America. Problem, of course, is going to come in 1640 with the uh, Restauradores and the movement for independence of Portugal. Uh, this will throw the slave trade into disarray in the Spanish Empire. And so it'll be a difficult task of finding efficient financiers uh, that could uh, get the system running again into the Spanish Empire. And so we'll see a series of companies, many of them failed between 1640 until 1713, uh, who try to uh, take up control of the trade. So it really becomes up for grabs between different uh, interests, such as the English crown, uh, the Dutch, Genoese bankers, and eventually the French. How did foreign agencies manage to get around the trade rules enforced by the Asiento? These agencies were able to rely both on formal privileges, which were in their contracts, uh, and also informal advantages. So in terms of formal privileges, uh, one thing that was used to entice companies to invest in the monopoly and want to take up the contract 
was the fact that if they had any lawsuits were most certainly to uh, come into play because it was a highly profitable business. So naturally, you could assume that the company was going to be sued at some point. Uh, the Crown allowed them to choose what was known as a weth conservador, meaning an official judge that would deal with all of these lawsuits that was anticipated were going to come uh, with the contract. Now, always in the contract was the power of the company to choose who this judge would be and actually to pay the salary of that judge. So you can imagine the type of uh, corrupt bargains that were made uh, behind the scenes as the companies uh, worked together very closely behind the scenes with these judges to make sure that any sorts of lawsuits uh, would be in the company's favor. The benefits of this privilege were actually more difficult than it seems, because at least I've seen through French correspondence, these West conservadores were very uh, keen about using this to their own advantage, uh, demanding very high salaries from the companies and demanding that any services done to the company uh, also come with some sort of reciprocal benefit to the West conservador, some kind of uh, Again, extra sort of bonus paid to the WEF, or maybe some other sort of privilege given to the family of the WEF. Uh, so as much as it seems to benefit foreigners, there were certain ways in which Spanish subjects, hey, were also able to benefit from this. Another formal privilege uh, that the companies, these foreign companies, were able to benefit from was actually direct access to Spanish America. Uh, the company was able to, based on the contract, keep a select number of factories or slave trading uh, posts in a number of important Spanish-American ports. The French contract during the reign of Philip V is significant because we start to see a uh, real growth in the number of factories, including uh, a factory established in Buenos Aires, which the Crown tried to keep previous contract holders from having. But by actually having these factories on the ground, uh, these foreigners were then able to make a presence, were able to bring their ships in, and of course, uh, staff these factories with their own employees, who then would make their own alliances with local officials, at least best case scenario. Now, of course, one of the greatest informal advantage then would be using these factories in Spanish American ports to allow company representatives uh, known as factors to actually work with local royal officials in order to maximize profits, usually through activities such as smuggling. Again, like in the case with the West Conservador, the, this more difficult sort of maneuvering than one would think, because these royal officials in Spanish-American ports were just as savvy as these West Conservadores, especially in terms of business. And so they could make or break a company uh, by their cooperation or non-cooperation with the company, always, of course, in return for some sort of reciprocal benefit. So... Uh, Again, in my correspondence, in my uh, French documents, uh, I see this delicate dance in which the French are constantly having to appease these officials, many of whom are Creoles, uh, in terms of getting them extra benefits or transporting their relatives back to Europe or tra transporting petitions back to the Spanish court. If not, believe me, uh, these Spanish colonial officials would make company life a living hell as had happened uh, with several Genoese companies during the 17th century, when in fact some royal governors who hadn't been appeased by the company factors uh, actually had the employees thrown into jail uh, in ports such as Cartagena. How important then is the transatlantic slave trade in the War of the Spanish Succession? 
it would seem then that the transatlantic slave trade was very important for financing the war uh, and also for the outbreak of the war and also for its conclusion. As I mentioned, we could argue, and looking at the dates, uh, we can see how it didn't take very long uh, after the Asiento was granted to the French for the Dutch and the English to jump into the war. Of course, uh, as we can see uh, through the diplomatic papers, uh, largely because they wanted the transatlantic slave trade or the monopoly in the Spanish Empire for themselves. This is more dramatically articulated by the English government when in 1707, and actually behind the backs of the Dutch, they finagle a treaty with uh, the Habsburg claimant to the throne, Archduke Charles, so that should Archduke Charles win the Spanish crown uh, and become the next king of Spain officially, that the English would then get the Asiento contract. We, of course, then also see it in 1713. It becomes a major important point for the English to actually sue for peace and sign the Peace of Utrecht. The fact that the South Sea Company uh, in London was able to get a hold of the Asiento. This was very clearly in the minds of the French. Uh, we can see in uh, the writings of important uh, French ministers during the era that they were constantly aware that the fact that they had the Asiento, and that the Dutch and the English wanted it, that this is why the war was being prolonged for so long. Uh, and in fact, it was very much noted even at the Peace of Utrecht Conference that the French, having to throw up their hands, we're realizing that the only way the English were going to sign was if they got the asiento. So let's talk about the political situation in Spain and Europe now. Um, how were relations between the Spanish and the French crowns during the reign of Charles II, the last Habsburg king? Well, certainly they were far from amicable, which I think sometimes surprises people. Uh, the fact that on his deathbed, Charles II would even think of leaving his crown uh, to a French prince. Uh, throughout the reign of Charles II, the French were very much aware of the weakening of Spain, very largely speaking, uh, in terms of uh, its economic decline, uh, the failure of its military, and of course, uh, the own palace intrigues of Charles II, the largely sort of divided government. You did have a small faction in the Spanish court that did actually want to create amicable relationships with the French. And that was largely the circle of Charles II's illegitimate half-brother, Don Juan José de Austria, who felt that the only way to bring some sort of peace to Spain, and allow it to sort of get on its feet uh, and breathe for a moment, uh, was to, again, to appease the French. He would die in 1679, uh, 20 years or so before the death of the king. Uh, so at least during the early era of Charles II's reign, even though French, uh, the French crown was Spain's prime enemy, uh, an attempt to try to negotiate with the French. Interestingly enough, as much as the French seemed to benefit from the weakness of Charles II, in terms of their acquisition of Saint-Domingue, for example, uh, their attempts to steal more territory uh, from the Spanish, including in the Low Countries, and of course their occupation of Catalonia during part of this era, the fact that they were so formidable of an enemy actually works in the favor of a Bourbon succession by the time the king is dying. Realizing that France is far more stronger uh, of a European power than the Dutch and the English, it becomes very clear while the king is dying 
that should he want to keep his empire intact, as strong as the French were as an enemy, upon his death, it was understood that they would be a very powerful ally and that they were probably the only European power that could actually keep the Spanish empire intact. Uh, so you have this kind of interesting situation, right? Uh, a former enemy is proven to be strong enough to become potentially a strong friend uh, should uh, they accept the Bourbon succession. So how important a player was Spain in European affairs by the end of the 17th century? Spain's role in European affairs had certainly gone into decline. I mean, certainly at this point, we could start talking about the great debate, right, about the decline of Spain. There's been those that have argued that Spain most definitely had gone into a decline in the 17th century, militarily, economically, politically. Others, of course, have argued that this is largely exaggerated. It's kind of a case of the glass half full, not half empty. Or, of course, a few who had said that the decline of Spain is not a worthy uh, debate because we can't really even talk about a true rise of Spain. Well... Uh, maybe there's a little bit of truth in all three of these arguments, but most certainly, again, we can say that by the end of the 17th century, it was becoming very clear that the Spanish crown needed to rely on having these other more powerful allies in order for it to maintain uh, the integrity of its empire and to maintain its power. So Spain most certainly is still an important player because we still see important European powers wanting to broker with the Spanish crown. And again, it's realizing that it can't really rule uh, on its own or keep uh, maintain its power on its own. An interesting thing that happens, though, this is greatly tested by the Bourbon succession, because as Charles II is dying, uh, his allies behind his back actually plot to uh, dismember the Spanish Empire, something known as the First and the Second Partition Treaties. So there was this idea that no matter who Charles II might choose as his heir, uh, whether it was an Austrian or a Frenchman. For a while there was a Bavarian, but he unfortunately died by 1699. Uh, that these great powers would then, amongst themselves, choose who the heir would be, no matter who Charles II had chosen, and that as recompense, different parts of the Spanish Empire would then be cut up and be given to the various European powers, to France, Austria, uh, the Netherlands, and of course, England. The kicker is once the king dies and gives it to the French crown, the French step back from the partition treaty and decide not to honor it. Uh, and actually, this is very well received at the Spanish court, this idea that the French are going to honor the fact that the dying king had made his decision of who his heir would be, and that the Spanish uh, crown could choose its own destiny, and that the empire should be preserved, uh, and that the French would, in fact, uh, appease this, that they would lend a hand in terms of ensuring this. So it's an interesting case that as the king is dying and the crown is weakening, this really important move in terms of Spain asserting itself against its allies and trying to maintain its integrity and preserve its own path uh, and its own agency politically. So what were the circumstances that led to the end of the Habsburg monarchy in Spain? The biggest factor was certainly biological. Charles II was always extremely sickly as a king. 
Uh, unfortunately, because of inbreeding between the Spanish and the Austrian Habsburgs, it had uh, grown to such an extent that by the time that the king is born, I mean, his parents are both cousins, besides being husband and wife, and also uncle and niece. Because of this, uh, Charles II uh, is impotent, besides being very infirm, having an oversized head, uh, and being, of course, very sickly throughout his life. It was constantly feared throughout his life uh, that he was uh, would die at any moment. There was such fear. I mean, he was so sickly as a child. Uh, he wasn't even allowed to walk on his own until I believe it was the age of 12. Um, we can see in reports of foreign ambassadors, especially the English and the French ambassadors, uh, the different physical ailments that he had at court, uh, irregular bowel movements, uh, not being able to eat food properly because of the grotesque nature in which the Habsburg lantern jaw had grown to such a deformity uh, in the body of Charles II. It's interesting in terms of the terrible physical state of the king, leading to some interesting sort of manipulation of the image of Charles II. And in fact, the uh, Gaceta de Madrid, the first official state newspaper in Spain, is created and try and create positive news reports that the king's not dying, the king is walking around, breathing, uh, living a normal life, when in fact, when we read the papers of ambassadors, it was quite the opposite. Uh, so there are some sort of creative ways in which Habsburg majesty is manipulated through images to hide a very cruel reality. The fact that he was impotent was actually blamed on his queens, which is rather sad. Uh, the man is married to two women, still with the desperate hopes that he will sire an heir. So first he's married to a French princess as an attempt to bring peace between Spain and France. His uh, brother, Don Juan José de Austria, brokers a marriage uh, with the niece of Louis XIV, who often locks herself in her room. Uh, and is very much frightened at the sight of the king. Uh, we know from the correspondence of, of the queen herself to her uncle, Louis XIV, uh, it was very clear to her that her husband could not perform his marital duties. She will die then in 1690, and again, not putting the blame on the king, and still in hopes of some kind of Austrian uh, succession, a German princess is chosen. Um, uh, from Newburgh, and she's sent to the court of Madrid, again, in hopes that the king will produce another heir. Uh, she's chosen from the Wittelsbach family, who's known to be particularly uh, fertile. Uh, but in the end, of course, as we know, the king himself was impotent and couldn't produce any children. Leads to a very sort of cruel but funny uh, pasquin during the era, uh, that there were three virgins in the capital city of Madrid, the Virgen de Almudena, the Virgen de la Tocha, y la Reina Nuestra Señora, la Pobrecita. Biological reasons certainly ensure that there aren't going to be any at least direct Spanish Habsburg eras. But also the cooling of relations between the courts of Madrid and Austria will also lead uh, to this notion that an alternative dynasty might be in the best interest of the Spanish Empire. Uh, it was starting to be felt by the end of the 17th century that an alliance with Austria really wasn't benefiting the Spanish crown. 
as much as the Spanish were always lending money to the Austrians, especially in their battles against the Turks, it seems as if the Austrians were not really there to lend any hand to the Spanish during their various wars during the end of the 17th century, uh, including the uh, Nine Years' War, for example. Uh, so this starting this notion that the Habsburg dynasty really hadn't benefited Spain uh, made this idea that a French succession maybe would uh, be a good alternative. So how did the Bourbon monarchy of France emerge as a main contender for the Spanish crown? An interesting thing that I find in my research is, as unfavorable opinions about Austria and the Austrian Habsburgs begin to arise in the Spanish Empire, at the same time, even though Louis XIV is technically an enemy of Spain during Charles II's reign, his image as a strong Catholic monarch begins to be perceived favorably within the Spanish Empire. Louis XIV is especially able to cultivate this idea that he is a Catholic monarch that doesn't suffer Protestantism, unlike the Austrians, who have to ally themselves with Protestant England and Protestant uh, the Protestant Dutch Republic. Uh, one grand move that Louis XIV makes in terms of promoting this image is by revoking the Edict of Nantes in 1685, which had allowed Protestantism to be tolerated, uh, at least in a limited manner, uh, within France. So after 1685, France is restored to being a purely Catholic monarchy. An interesting thing I found, again, is that uh, this image spreads across the Atlantic uh, and actually improves relations between the French Antilles and Spanish America. Uh, this notion that Catholics should only trade with the Catholics, can trust Catholics, uh, trust their integrity, or trust their intentions, uh, meant this idea of working with France, uh, at least for cultural reasons or religious reasons, seemed to make more sense than working with Austria, which meant by default, working with Protestant uh, England uh, and the Protestant Dutch Republic. Uh, and so there's these interesting sort of cultural factors that also make a Bourbon sec uh, succession make more sense in the minds, more broadly speaking, of Spanish imperial subjects. If we look at the propaganda of the war, then, it's also very keen the way that uh, in France and in Spain, they try to depict the war of the Spanish succession as a religious conflict about this idea that allied with France, Spanish America could potentially oust its Protestant neighbors, Protestant imperial neighbors, uh, and restore all the Americas uh, to the Catholic faith uh, by France and Spain uh, joining hands in this sort of holy alliance. At least that's what the propaganda says. So Philip of Anjou, how did he manage to make a claim to the throne? Certainly, compared to Archduke Charles, the Austrian claimant to the throne, Philip Anjou had a stronger dynastic claim uh, to the Spanish throne. His grandmother, for example, uh, the Infanta Margarita, wife of Louis XIV, was a Habsburg, Spanish Habsburg princess. She was the sister of Charles II. Uh, and also he had a grandmother, uh, Anne of Austria, who was the mother of Louis XIV. Uh, daughter of Philip III, uh, who, who was also a direct line then uh, to the Spanish uh, court. Compared to Archduke Charles, uh, he was the son of Emperor Leopold, who, yes, was married to the Infanta Margarita, 
famous from the Las Meninas painting. But she had actually died without any children. So even though by marriage this connected Leopold Court or Archduke Charles, right, through um, his dead, technically half uh, mother, uh, there was less of a direct claim. This meant that the claim uh, to the throne came from Leopold's um, mother, who was a Spanish Habsburg, and so it was far more removed in terms of Archduke Charles' dynastic claims. We want to get right into the business of, of these different family connections. The issue, though, for Philip of Anjou was Philip IV had purposely tried to avoid a Bourbon succession by, when brokering the marriage between his daughter, the Infanta Margarita, and Louis XIV, he had ensured that a clause be inserted into the marriage agreement that she had to renounce any claims that she would have to the Spanish throne. So technically, through the marriage agreement, uh, this would then negate any claims Philip of Anjou would have had to the Spanish throne. But interestingly enough, Charles II and his ministers thought that even though this was the case, that they would challenge this in the king's will because this French alliance would benefit Spain far more than the Austrian alliance. So it's an interesting thing in which you can see Charles II's government uh, trying to, uh, on its own terms, establish its own destiny and choose what it thought was best for the Spanish throne, despite of these different international agreements. Also, again, Philip, the, uh, Philip of Anjou's Catholic faith, his connection to a strong potential ally of Spain in the face of other allies who had proven to be uh, less, than, uh, less than beneficial for the Spanish throne, uh, certainly made him, at least on the surface level, appear to be the best candidate. So Philip's candidacy was pretty strong, as you say. So how did the war to Spanish succession actually come about then, if his claim was so strong? The war is both an internal and external war if we look at the Spanish Empire. As I mentioned, uh, the Austrians are going to contest it almost immediately, the Bourbon succession, which naturally makes sense. They would want to exert the claims of an Austrian Habsburg. The Dutch and the English are going to become involved because it will be very clear that it's against um, not only political interests, but commercial interests globally uh, that they should contest at the Bourbon succession and so that the commercial benefits that Spain, uh, France had gained under the Bourbons should then go to their merchants and their government. Over time, however, we do see growing disillusionment with the alliance with France, especially the notion that the French were gaining too much power at the Spanish court and also too many economic benefits in the global Spanish empire, including the Americas. And so we start to see nobles, especially at the Spanish court, take offense at the growing power of different French agents, different French ambassadors, members of the court, and the sway that they started to have over the monarch, Philip V, who always exerted a sense of Frenchness, even though he was on the Spanish throne. One of the first nobles to actually contest the Bourbon succession was the Admiral of Castile, who gets appointed to be the ambassador to France, which was understood as really a meaningless post, that he was just sort of being sent to France uh, with this sort of honorific post, uh, and that it really wasn't going to mean much, that the French were uh, going to be in control. It wasn't about sort of equal or reciprocal powers. 
On the way to Paris, he will flee to Portugal and actually become one of the most outspoken opponents to Bourbon succession. At one point, claiming that Spain had now become a vice royalty of France and that Philip V was not king of Spain, but rather Louis XIV's viceroy. These tones, these uh, arguments, these anti-French sediments, which are sometimes based on very base Francophobia, or sometimes reality, this idea that, yes, the French were gaining too much power over the Spanish. Uh, this will then plunge Iberia into civil war and also cause the political polarization in Spanish America. So even though Philip of Anjou's claim was stronger, we definitely see voices of dissent uh, and a very strong political battle uh, and debate start to arise within the Spanish Empire. Uh, at its most militant, it will lead to things such as the uh, rebellion uh, in Catalonia, uh, in Valencia, in the Balearic Islands, uh, which will side with the Habsburgs uh, for their naturally their own political uh, and economic uh, benefits. Uh, also within Castile, as I mentioned, many nobles will actually side with the Habsburgs. Something that's often overlooked was Castile wasn't united in terms of supporting the Bourbons. Something that gets overlooked is this will also happen in Spanish America. And in fact, some of the evidence that I use in my research looks at uh, sedition, anti-Bourbon sedition that arises in the Americas. As certain Spanish colonial subjects uh, will believe that, uh, yes, perhaps the Habsburg succession uh, would have been more beneficial to their own interests. So let's talk about the famous Sun King now. Um, is it fair to say that Louis XIV of France could, at the end of the 17th century, be compared to Philip II of Spain towards the end of the 16th century in terms of the power and influence that they both wielded in Europe and in America? That's certainly fair to say in terms of France becoming the new important sort of hegemon uh, in Europe in the 17th century compared to Spain, right, in the 16th century. Something very curious is the fact that Louis XIV himself uh, often looked to Spanish Habsburg models in terms of, of his own sort of imagining uh, of his role within Europe uh, and his power. He himself was descended from the Spanish Habsburgs. Uh, as I had mentioned earlier, he was the son of Anne of Austria, who was a Spanish infanta. Uh, and something very interesting is uh, his notion, cultivation of his image as the Sun King was largely based on the cultivation of the image of Philip IV as a rey planeta. A rey planeta, we're referring to the planet of the sun and this idea that Philip IV, uh, in fact, had used kind of uh, this earlier trope uh, in order to create his own image as uh, an important monarch. A universal monarch. Even though Louis XIV admired at least the imagery of Philip IV's court, which by this point we can start to maybe talk about Spain being into decline, uh, he very much admired the groundwork that had been laid by monarchs like Philip II in terms of consolidating power um, within his kingdom, kind of like a proto-absolutist monarchy. Uh, also the creation of a bureaucracy that put more power into the crown. And it's often been noted that even the creation of El Escorial as a royal retreat had in, an impact on Louis XIV when he starts to envision the court of Versailles, moved from the capital uh, of Paris. 
During this era as well, the ministers of Louis XIV actually study very intensely Spanish Habsburg history. And in his letters to his grandson, Philip V, Louis XIV will remind Philip V of how Philip II, for example, and the Reyes Católicos, Isabel and uh, Ferdinand, had wielded certain powers to centralize uh, authority and how those models were actually beneficial and served as a good precedent as Philip V could consolidate his own power, especially as subjects had started to begin to challenge his rule. Another important factor here, though, is also the way that Spanish imperial subjects uh, looked at these sort of parallels between the Bourbons in the 17th century and the Habsburgs at their height in the 16th century. A comparison uh, that's often made during this era, especially early in the reign of Philip V, is comparing him to Charles V. Uh, and this notion that Spain had really reached its golden age, uh, and Spain had sort of reached its political power and order under Charles V, and that a new monarch, Philip V, much like Charles V, who had been born on foreign soil uh, and had come from a new dynasty uh, to rule over the empire, uh, would bring Spain back to its height in the same way. Uh, so often a lot of the imagery, especially during succession uh, ceremonies, or royal acclamation ceremonies throughout the empire in honor of Philip V, uh, you will see this uh, parallel between Charles V and Philip V made, that Philip V is going to be the new Charles V. Besides this sort of simple nostalgia of wanting to look back to a glorious past in hopes of a more glorious future, there's a practical reason why Spanish imperial subjects also wanted to create a parallel between Philip the fifth and Charles the fifth, most especially in the Americas. Looking back to the era of Charles the fifth, we could start to see the consolidation of power in Spanish America, the creation of the first viceroyalties, most of the audiencias, and most major cities in the Americas, and also, of course, uh, different sort of pacts and alliances made with indigenous communities. This is when we could start to really talk about the República de Indios. It was thought that under the reign of Charles V that these first pacts were made in a more pristine and orderly and beneficial manner to Spanish uh, colonial subjects. And that over time, the Habsburgs hadn't lived up to their bargains that they had made originally. This notion as well of comparing Philip V to Charles V in hopes that, for example, uh, in Tlaxcala, that Philip V would honor the tax breaks and the benefits that Charles V had promised to Tlaxcala that he certainly hadn't lived up to. For example, in uh, Tlaxcala, uh, in central Mexico, uh, a city-state or Altepet that had benefited uh, uh, the Spanish in terms of the conquest of Mexico by allying with Hernán Cortés, uh, they used this opportunity of the succession of a Bourbon to compare Philip V with Charles V in hopes that Philip V uh, unlike the other later Habsburgs, would honor the different uh, privileges that Charles V had bestowed on Tlaxcala, including things like uh, exemptions uh, from certain taxes uh, and certain curvae laws. Uh, and so by drawing this comparison, not only are they looking back uh, to this 
nostalgic notion of the Spanish Empire, its height, uh, there's really uh, certain benefits that are at stake. Also in other cities throughout the empire, we're going to start to see a renewal of the sort of cult of Charles V, uh, certain paintings uh, being made, uh, and these parallels between the two monarchs, again, in hopes that Philip V uh, will honor local privileges, unlike the later Habsburgs had done in the Americas. So overall, how was the Bourbon monarchy received in Spain and in Spanish America? Its reception was certainly mixed on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, I think we have more evidence of it being more ill-received in Spain versus Spanish America uh, for certain obvious reasons uh, that are kind of probably more broadly known if you've read uh, works on the War of the Spanish Succession. This idea of Bourbon uh, sovereignty uh, infringing upon the fueros of certain parts of the empire, especially uh, Catalonia, uh, or this idea uh, in Spanish Italy uh, of the French coming in and centralizing power and then threatening local interests. So it makes sense uh, in this context why Iberia certainly falls into a far more kind of turbulent experience in terms of the succession. Spanish-American subjects, on the other hand, tended to, at least as evidence suggests, more greatly favor the Bourbon succession, although I definitely have evidence of those uh, who spoke out uh, against it. It's not because Spanish colonial subjects were, in a sense, isolated from what was going on in Iberia and didn't know of potential consequences. Something that's really provocative about this era is in, in which news and gossip flowed very quickly uh, across the Atlantic, especially as Spanish colonial subjects wanted to know whether or not the Bourbons seemed to be winning the war. They were also well aware of the fact that different nobles uh, were revolting against the Bourbons. They were aware of the fact of different movements in Catalonia and Italy uh, to recognize the Habsburgs. Uh, and so they did, in fact, realize what was going on uh, politically. What I would argue, though, despite the fact, again, that I've mentioned that we have evidence of certain elites uh, who were sympathetic to the Habsburgs uh, and even tried to use alliances or create alliances in the Americas with the English and the Dutch, even though we have these voices of dissent in the Americas, it would seem as though a Bourbon succession largely benefited Spanish colonial subjects. This was because it becomes very apparent that the Bourbons need the support of Spanish colonial subjects in order to win the war itself in Europe. The Americas is certainly the greatest source of wealth for the Spanish Empire, and by actually working to appease local elites in the Americas, by offering new privileges, by trying to uh, broker new alliances, by creating different and new avenues for patronage, for example, the Bourbons actually work very hard to make sure that Spanish colonial subjects are quite happy with the Bourbon succession. Okay, so uh, staying on the theme of Spanish America then, um, you've written about a number of Spanish American elites uh, who you say provide us with a good example of how trade and politics mingled, uh, intermingled in, in this period. What can you tell us about them? These elites are really crucial for the war on both sides of the Atlantic. As I mentioned, Spanish America relies on money, on trade from the Americas uh, in order to finance the war in Europe. And the way to ensure that that trade was profitable was largely through concessions that had to be made on the local 
the level in the Americas to elites at many different levels. Something that's very Bourbon, I might say, uh, in nature, especially if we look at France, is the use of patronage in order to build alliances. This was something that was really the hallmark of uh, Bourbon sovereignty in France, beginning with uh, Henry IV, for example, the first Bourbon king, who largely paid off opposition in France to things such as the Edict of Nantes, which brought toleration and ended the French wars of religion and civil wars within France. Of course, Louis XIV's court, which was very, very famous in terms of dispensing patronage, uh, creating different spies uh, networks, and creating loyalties amongst French nobles by inviting them to court, by paying off their debts. Philip V actually does something very similar, largely in Spanish America, in terms of finding new ways of using patronage in order to get Spanish American elites uh, to warm up to this idea of this new uh, dynasty. One way he does this is continuing a practice that had began in the reign of Charles II and was very controversial, which was uh, making offices in the Americas venal, meaning you had to purchase them, putting up uh, a higher number of offices uh, for sale within Spanish America than ever before. This meant that this actually continued to allow Creoles, for example, uh, to work their way into the Spanish imperial bureaucracy by purchasing these positions, sometimes even within their local communities, which traditionally was uh, prohibited in order to avoid corruption. Philip V's government sort of looks the other way during the war and allows this to happen. It really needs these local elites to work with the crown, no matter what the costs would be. Trade comes into play because it's the French asiento agents who really act as the go-betweens in terms of making sure that this patronage network between the new Bourbons and these Spanish colonial subjects uh, functions properly. It's the slave factories that act as the depots in which Spanish colonial elites uh, pass petitions to the new king and correspondence, which then are relayed back to the Spanish court on the slave ships and given to envoys, who then pass them to the Spanish ambassador, who will then address the Spanish king at the same time. Or sometimes they would even rely directly on the French court uh, by passing those uh, dispatches, those petitions, to Louis XIV and his ministers themselves, who would then, very eager to make sure that French trade prospered and had the cooperation of Spanish colonial elites, then use their own leverage to negotiate with Philip V to make sure that the proper pro-French and cooperative Spanish colonial elites got the best military posts, got the best positions as governors. And so they always worked uh, reciprocally to make sure that each side was sort of benefiting the other. In this sense, the French asiento contract, while it can be argued wasn't the most economically successful of the companies, uh, was crucial politically into making sure that this patronage network that bought Spanish colonial elites loyalty uh, functioned during this era and made sure that Spanish American sentiments, while they were mixed, some for and against the Bourbons, were more for than against. 
And just kind of as a side note, by the way, in terms of the patronage power of the new Bourbons and how it surpassed those of the Habsburgs, over the course of Spanish colonial history in the Americas, there were, I believe, I think it was something like 120 titles of nobility given out in New Spain by the Spanish crown, and 130, I believe, titles of nobility in the Viceroyalty of Peru. In both cases, over half of those titles were given by Philip V, and many of them starting in this era during the War of the Spanish Succession. It was a sign of things to come in terms of how the Bourbons were willing to negotiate or purchase. I don't know if we want to uh, call it what it is, purchase the loyalty uh, and benefit local elites in the Americas. So do you think that the Spanish Bourbon monarchy was ultimately beneficial or detrimental to Spanish-American elites? It would seem to be more beneficial, at least during the reign of Philip V, which, mind you, was a very long reign. It lasts from 1700 to 1746. So it uh, encapsulates really the first chunk of the 18th century. Uh, we continue to see Spanish-American uh, elites, especially Creoles, become integrated into the Spanish colonial bureaucracy. We see a crown that's very much willing to negotiate power on the local level, oftentimes for local benefits, sometimes curiously seem to outweigh uh, those of the metropolis. Uh, it would seem then, uh, yes, I would argue that at least under Philip V, we see a far more open crown. This might surprise some of our listeners because they think the sort of classic view of the Bourbons is them being detrimental to the interests of Spanish-American elites. Um, so an important thing to always point out is which Bourbon are we talking about? Uh, certainly during the reign of uh, Charles III, 1759 to 1788, we could see the reverse of what his father had done. This idea of trying to uh, do away with venal offices put more peninsulars in power and stem the power of Spanish-American elites, especially, especially Creoles in terms of their roles in the bureaucracy. We can understand why this was uh, perceived as something rather negative uh, and why it continues to be criticized within the historiography. It's a shame that most historians have overlooked the earlier Bourbon reforms, those of Philip V, because, again, it shows us this interesting moment in which the crown needs to and is open to integrating these elites into the bureaucracy more than ever before. This should add to our notion of the sting being particularly sharp during the Bourbon reforms of Charles III, where Spanish-American elites' powers are starting to be curbed. Uh, because, again, if we look at the benefits that they received under Philip V, how much they had gained and benefited, uh, and how much that had been taken away now that the Bourbons were firmly on the throne by the end of the century, we can understand many of the grievances uh, that will start to arise and, well, eventually lead to independence at the beginning of the 19th century. Can we talk about Philip V briefly? Uh, what kind of a ruler was he? Part-time ruler, I guess we could say. When he wanted to rule, uh, he was very much into the role. When he didn't want to, he made life a living hell at court. Uh, he was a man that suffered from a lot of psychological issues. Certainly the weight of being king of Spain uh, gave him some very stressful moments. I mean, we should be cautious, right, in terms of analyzing his psychology. Many historians 
uh, Anglophone and also Spanish historians who kind of grappled with his eccentricities because he was the man that seemed to suffer, at least in the era of what we would call like melancholia, some kind of uh, depression, maybe even was bipolar. If the Habsburgs had their maladies, certainly the Bourbons had their own maladies themselves. Louis XIV often thrived over the fact that he could win wars and was very good at centralizing power, sort of flexing his political muscles. The fact that the many failures of the Spanish military, especially the Spanish Navy against the English, or the fact that the Spanish bureaucracy was far more heavy and weighed down than the French bureaucracy was, so Philip V will try to fix this. Uh, the fact that the king's hands were often tied because of these means meant that he kind of begrudged being king and often resented the fact that he couldn't sort of wield power the way he wanted to. So this tends to be something that makes uh, his job a little less pleasant as king. It was so unpleasant, in fact, at times that he tries to abdicate. He successfully does this in 1724 behind the back of his queen, uh, Isabel de Farnesio, uh, by issuing uh, his resignation or his abdication of king to the Council of Castile. His son, uh, Don Luis, becomes king for a couple of months, then dies of smallpox. Philip V has to be convinced again by a group of bishops and also by the Council of Castile to resume the role because he was sort of tired of, of being king. He will actually try to abdicate a few more times, but his queen, uh, Isabel de Farnesio, will make sure, for example, that only pencils are given to the king, not pens, so abdications could be easily erased. Uh, and that correspondence between the king is always monitored by the queen to make sure that he never gave up the role again. She was a good Italian mother. She had a bunch of children with Philip V. She knew that if he abdicated, the marriage pro prospects would not be very good. Uh, and so certainly she had very personal reasons for making sure that the king stayed on the throne. So yes, he sort of vacillates between loving his role as king. He certainly loved it during the War of Spanish Succession, more often than not, because he enjoyed being on the battlefield. In fact, he was... Uh, arguably, I think the last Spanish king to actually fight on the front lines. I mean, uh, Charles III during the War of Polish Succession, which allows the Spanish to grab Naples and Sicily and create them as satellite kingdoms. I believe he was present in some of the naval battles. But Philip V himself was actually on battlefield lines during the War of Spanish Succession, and during the War of the Quadruple Alliance, on his horse, uh, not leading the charge, uh, leading very closely uh, to the extent that he's even reprimanded from Louis XIV from getting a little too close to flying bullets. Uh, Louis XIV thought that that was rather brave and admirable and knew that his subjects thought it was brave and admirable as well, but he might want to be a little cautious until he produced an heir. There's plenty of gossip and intrigue from this era that also sheds light on his uh, behavior, his eccentricities, and also his personality as monarch, which makes him a very complex subject uh, to kind of view as both a king and a person. Something that's important in terms of understanding his psychological profile is the fact that he never forgot he was a Frenchman. He was actually ordered by Louis XIV to never forget this. There's sort of these interesting um, lists of advice that Louis XIV passes to Philip V, including 
including this sort of sheet that's often been reprinted, was printed even during the era of uh, the sage advice of Louis XIV that's given to Philip V as he's getting in his carriage as they've had the last hurrah at the Chateau de Sceaux uh, as he's leaving the French court in order to travel to Madrid. And one of the most important pieces of advice that Louis IV gave him was never forget that you are a Frenchman, that if he ever ran into trouble, he could rely on the French. Louis XIV may have meant this for political reasons, that Philip V should never forget he was French, so that there would always be a strong alliance between the two crowns. But also this was something very personal to Philip V, who really never mastered Spanish uh, and was, in fact, rather timid about speaking Spanish at the Spanish court and preferred to communicate with his ministers, especially with his wife uh, in French. He preferred to eat French food as well uh, and very quickly abandoned Spanish fashion uh, in order to adapt a full sort of French wardrobe at the Spanish court. He was also a king that always was quick to intervene if there ever seemed to be any rifts between the alliance between Spain and France, because he took it as something that was very personal. So apart from making sure that political, economic, diplomatic relations between the two courts was strong, he also was very eager to make sure that marriage alliances between Madrid and Versailles uh, would be made. So actually a very important event in his life will be the marriage of one of his daughters, uh, the Infanta Maria Antonia, uh, to the Dauphin of France uh, in 1745. He was a very monotonous man, which also I think is an important part of his psychology. Maybe he's kind of a stereotype in terms of thinking of Spanish kings, often ate the same foods every day, uh, insisted on hunting every day. His relationship with his wives uh, the Queen Maria Luisa de Savoia and Isabel de Farnesio, who was Princess of Parma, have also been a major source of sort of intrigue in terms of understanding his character. He's been criticized by historians of both Spain and France, and also Europe more widely, for giving these queens a lot of political power, which was a role that they were actually very eager to uptake. For example, as the king was on the battlefield during the War of Spanish Succession, his wife, Marie Luisa de Savoia, often stood in for the king, signing his name on documents uh, and serving as an authority at the court as the king was off uh, fighting uh, to protect his throne. Or even when he made uh, his entry into Naples, uh, she's at the center of the court making sure that uh, everything runs smoothly. She was an interesting queen, by the way. I mean, she dies very early in his reign, 1714. Uh, produces two heirs for the, for him uh, to become king but die without heirs, Louis I and Ferdinand VI. But she was a queen that was even more eager to take up the role of Queen of Spain than the king himself. She learned Spanish very quickly. She studied guitar with the composer Santiago de Murcia, so she could actually play Spanish guitar. She very quickly adapted Spanish fashion, or at least French court robes or dresses that had Spanish accoutrements on them. And so she was very much loved by the Spanish people for taking these efforts to become more Hispanic or more Hispanized, even more than the king himself. Isabel de Farnesio, who I mentioned earlier, becomes queen in 1714. 
She's really instrumental in terms of making sure that the Spanish bureaucracy functions during these times when the king is going through his darkest moments of depression. She was the one, for example, that made sure that networks of patronage uh, continued to function when the king would, say, seclude himself in the palace, including these strange moments when he would lock himself in his room and refuse to talk to ministers. Spain will continue to go to war throughout the 18th century during the reign of Philip V. The queen is sometimes blamed for the fact that, yes, these wars benefited her children. And as the king became reclusive, she was sort of at the center of power. So it's been suspected that it was sort of her agenda to further these wars. It was certainly mutually beneficial. I mean, these children of Isabella of Farnesio were also the children of Philip V. The king very much was interested in these wars in terms of counterbalancing English gains through the Peace of Utrecht. So as much as historians like to blame Isabel de Farnesio for continuing European conflicts, at least in the sense of looking at Philip V's perspective, when he was incapacitated by his melancholia, not apt to make sure that the machine of government was functioning, uh, the queen was able to step in and actually able to make sure that things ran smoothly. One final note about the king. This is another kind of Bourbon malady, is the fact that, uh, as it's often been said, the Bourbons never forget and they learn nothing, or at least that's something that Voltaire will say at the end of the 18th century. He was always trying to cause trouble. He said this in France, right, when a Bourbon monarch was still ruling France, uh, though he wasn't the most popular monarch with the Bourbons. This maxim certainly runs true with Philip V. Throughout his reign, the biggest thorn in his thigh will always be the Peace of Utrecht and all the losses that the Spanish crown had suffered as a result of the War of Spanish Succession. Now, even though Spanish America had remained intact as a single unit, and he was able to consolidate his power in the peninsula, got to keep the Spanish crown, was able to then also quell the rebellion uh, in Catalonia, and restore uh, peace and integrity in Iberia, he will never forget what he had lost in the Peace of Utrecht. And so he will labor very long and hard throughout his reign uh, to try and recapture Gibraltar, to try and recapture territory lost in North Africa, in which he is actually successful. The Spanish retake will run in 1732. He will make the life of the English a living hell for having gained the asiento during the Peace of Utrecht, and work very diligently uh, at the Spanish court uh, to try and undermine the company and the benefits it received, and always, of course, alert Spanish colonial officials uh, when they should confiscate property of the South Sea Company uh, and make things very difficult for them. So he was a king that really made it his life goal to try and reverse uh, uh, growing English hegemony and all of the detriments, all of the losses he felt that Spain had suffered as a result of the Peace of Utrecht. The 18th century is traditionally seen as the Age of Enlightenment, um, a period associated with the emergence of profound intellectual, philosophical and political movements. Where do the Spanish Bourbons in the 18th century belong in this climate? One factor certainly to consider is the role of the Spanish Bourbons as patrons during the reign of Philip V. During this era, we see the beginnings of what is now the Biblioteca Nacional, 
de España, which began as the Biblioteca Real. We also see the establishment of the Real Academia Española, thanks to Bourbon patronage during this era. That's the reason why, in fact, the portrait of Philip V hangs in one of the salas of the Real Academia Española. Culturally, this is also a very rich period as well at the Bourbon court and also more broadly throughout the Spanish Empire. Uh, something that really deserves far more scholarship uh, is sort of uh, musicology and the history of music during this era. We see exciting things in terms of art music, Baroque uh, and classical music begin to uh, flower during this era. On both sides of the Atlantic, in fact, uh, we start to see the compositions of Antonio de Litres and Sebastián uh, Durón at the Spanish court to start to start this transition from Tarzuela into uh, what we can call sort of mature opera within Spain. Uh, in Mexico, we see the composer, mestizo composer, Manuel de Sumaya, compose the first operas that are performed uh, in the Americas at the court of Mexico, the operas uh, Rodrigo uh, and Partenope. This, of course, is not to be outdone by the court of Lima, where in 1701, the composer Torrejone Velasco will compose the opera uh, La Pulpra de la Rosa uh, to celebrate the 18th birthday and the succession of Philip V to the Spanish throne. We also see Spanish Baroque culture become more cosmopolitan during this era, uh, thanks to new tastes that are introduced uh, with the Spanish Bourbons. We see a greater even cultural conversation happen, for example, when Rocco Cerute, the Venetian composer, accompanies the first Bourbon viceroy of Peru, uh, the Marquette de Castos dos Rios, uh, to the court of Lima uh, and continues to cultivate uh, this type of uh, at least Italian-European culture on the other side of the Atlantic. Giacomo Facco, who is a court composer at the viceregal court of Sicily, uh, accompanies the last uh, Spanish viceroy of Sicily back to the Spanish court and also introduce new musical fashions uh, to uh, the Bourbons. Um, and of course, uh, Spanish queens, being of Italian descent, uh, will also bring their own composers and their own musical taste, uh, which will have a profound effect uh, on Spanish music. Not only the incorporation of these elements, but later, as we see in the 18th century, a strong rejection of these Italian elements. When we see the rise of, for example, the tonadilla, which has a more costumbrista uh, taste to it, as uh, Spaniards begin a debate over whether these outside influences are beneficial and whether or not they're actually relevant to the Spanish proto-national character. The growth of Republic of Letters and also this notion of French innovation, French institutions, uh, is having a major impact on the Spanish uh, empire at this time. I mean, the Real Academia Española is based off of a French model of the French Academy. Also, this idea of the French uh, Enlightenment and French Enlightenment thought is continuing to be more further integrated into Hispanic thought, such as the writings of Feijó, which reflect this. And intellectual culture will also, along these lines, uh, begin to crystallize and continue to flourish on the other side of the Atlantic. Not that it didn't exist before, but it's starting to more closely engage uh, with more broader European trends. 
classic case would be in Peru. The writings of Peralta de Barnuevo uh, is very much introduce, introduces French philosophical thought uh, into Peru. And also the direct interaction uh, between scholars and scientists in the Hispanic world uh, and France uh, becomes very clear in this era, including the uh, Condomine expedition, which goes into uh, Spanish South America in order to chart uh, the equator. We start to see an interesting exchange between Spanish subjects intellectually, scientifically, uh, with other Europeans, such as uh, the French at the time. Certainly, I'm not the first to argue that Spain does have a place within the Enlightenment. I'm happy to say this perspective we are starting to see more fully integrated into scholarship on the Enlightenment, both in terms of European scholarship uh, and scholarship looking at uh, the Americas. Uh, this idea that there is actually a dynamic conversation, and that Hispanic intellectuals born in Europe and born in the Americas are actually taking part in this uh, Republic of Letters. I think this is a factor that's been largely unappreciated. Uh, especially because the black legend, hey, it's stronger than ever during the Enlightenment. Look at the writings again of Voltaire uh, and also English philosophers during this era, which still counted Spain as the anti-model uh, empire or a people that were backwards, antiquated. Look at popular engravings of the era, which always showed the cartoon Spaniard wearing the large sort of ruffled collar and old-fashioned uh, costume, often wielding a sword, uh, showing this kind of violent kind of conquistador-type attitude. I'm happy to say new scholarship, though, uh, by academics in Europe uh, and the Americas has started to shed light on this fact that the Hispanic world did, in fact, have a very vibrant Enlightenment culture, participated in the Republic of Letters, uh, and had a broader impact uh, within its own empire and also outside of its empire in terms of cultivating the modern world, I guess we could say. Aaron, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure uh, to speak with you today.